Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower King, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McCurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll finish Roadwork, part three. Let's start the show. Bart Dawes is shopping at the grocery store when he sees a woman die right in front of him. He takes this as a sign and begins to get his affairs in order. Selling the house and splitting the proceeds with his wife, giving some of his money to a homeless man, procuring explosives from Magliore, and also asking One-Eyed Sal to find Olivia and give her another chunk of money. He then barricades himself inside his house that is now wired with explosives. During a standoff with police, he is able to briefly speak with the reporter from the prologue of the story. After the reporter leaves, he detonates the explosives, killing himself and destroying the house. In an epilogue, we learn that the highway had no real reason for being built, and within months, Dawes' actions are mostly forgotten. That is a pretty depressing... <laughs> yeah, when you put it that way, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we'll talk a little bit about that later on in this episode, but yeah, a, a depressing end to the story and sort of a depressing end to the fourth Bachman book in the Bachman books collection. And I don't know if any of these stories really had a happy ending, so maybe it's par for the course. I think it is. Oh, I mean, except for the long walk. I mean, he won the walk. Yeah. I mean, that that did have a, a fairy tale storybook ending. <laughs> Cinderella story. <laughs> Every man beats the competition, wins the walk, main zone. That's right. On that note, one of the things I want to talk about with the conclusion of Roadwork is that Dawes seems to be locked in. He's locked into all of the elements of where he has let his life get to at this point. Like the former priest Drake, Dawes is paying a penance, and because of that, he feels like he can't just drive off to a new life. That's the obvious choice here, right? The, I think somebody who was in a healthier mental space would just realize, okay, the world is against me. My house, my job, my marriage, my child, I've lost them all. But I have an opportunity to start fresh. Yep. Yes, I've lived through tragedy. Yes, I've I've endured sadness and sorrow, but I can I can begin again. And he chooses not to. And I think it's because he's hung up on this penance. He feels like in some way responsible for all of these terrible things that have happened in his life. So he's not allowed to, or he won't allow himself to start fresh and move beyond these terrible things. Yep. He literally spells it all out, exactly what I could do. The car's mm -hmm. paid off. The house is now sold. I've got, you know, $32,000 in cash in my pocket. And there's a whole world out there. You know, it's the it's the 70s. It's not like there's social media going to be following him and be like, oh yeah, that's that crazy guy. Like he could literally drive one state over and find a job right away. Mm -hmm. You know, give his wife a no-fault divorce, not think about his kid anymore, not think about his wife, his house, the fact that he lost his job, and just start anew. And he lays it all out. And then he's like, nope, I can't do that. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing, which has seemed somewhat inevitable from the beginning of this book, that he bought the guns without knowing why he was buying the guns. Mm -hmm. He's laid out the script in his mind of, I'm going to talk to Magliori and he's going to give me explosives after some back and forth because first he won't want to and then he will. And he doesn't see a way out of that. 
And that death of that woman in the grocery store, I think, is part of that, right? Like he sees like, hey, things happen to people and this is a sign from God and he interprets it the wrong way, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I, yeah. I don't think there's anything to think. think yes. yeah, he, he interprets it the wrong way. But like you said, he's got this whole idea of what what that penance is and and that discussion with Drake has sort of done that. And his wife even calls him on this. So one of his last meetings with her, it might even be on the phone. She says to him, what good are you doing yourself thinking about Charlie all the time? It's eating you up. You're his prisoner. Mm -hmm. And then he says to his wife, but you're free, he said. And she says, yes, because she's already gone through her grief and she's she's taken the off ramp off that that path that he won't he chooses not to. Yeah, it's something that I talked about in a previous episode where they both grieved. They're both devastated by the death of their son, but she but for however she managed it, she grieved in a healthy way mm. and managed to emerge from the other side of that grief. And now she is, as he puts it, free. Yeah. Free of the grief of the death of their child. It's not that she doesn't care. It's not that she doesn't remember him or doesn't wish that he were still alive, but she has moved past. She's healed. And he hasn't. He never let himself do that. And that's why she's exactly right that Dawes remains his son's prisoner. And I think it's that that is the main thing, keeping Dawes locked in. Yeah, absolutely. That's the biggest part of the penance. Yep. And he reminisces about uh, the time when he and Mary were taking Charlie, which is yet another Charlie here, mm -hmm. to daycare for the first time. And his wife is able to, even though Charlie doesn't want to be at the daycare and is crying and is upset and wants to go with his parents and doesn't understand, she's able to leave him there. And and he can't even get over that. Like, that's too much for him. And he says, Mary's footsteps never faltered because a woman's love is strange and cruel and nearly always clear-sighted. Love that sees is always horrible love. And I think that that gets to the grief part, too. I don't think that her love of her son is strange and cruel, but it is clear-sighted, right? She did mm -hmm. her grieving, and she realizes there's nothing more I can do about this. It is sad what happened to my son. It is tragic what happened to my son. But me dwelling on it is not going to do anything. And Dawes is unable to get out of that. He, he, he needs to dwell on it. Yeah. So this section seems very inevitable because of that locked in aspect of it. You know, like mm -hmm. the whole book seems inevitable to some extent, but like this one is very much focused on this uh, in inevitability. And so how things play out, play out how, how we expected them to. One of the things that I found interesting is, and I don't think this is tacked on, although it sort of is in the epilogue in the last sentence, but King has been thinking about this. The fact that the prologue focuses on a reporter who's talking about the highway and interviews Dawes, and then the book ends, it's bookended with this epilogue in which we find out that the reporter is the same reporter and he has talked to Dawes in the house before he blows himself up and wins a Pulitzer Prize because he does this investigative reporting on why was the highway being built in the first place? And he learns that there was no real reason for it. It was just to spend money that the state had gotten and they didn't want to lose it, blah, blah, blah. But this idea of the power of the press that King keeps bringing up, he really leans into it as if the press has this immense power in his mind to change public viewpoints and outcomes. But we've seen it in Firestarter. We see it in The Dead Zone. Uh, we see it with Ben Richards in The Running Man calling the press. Mm -hmm. We see it in Rage to some extent when the press keeps the police from, from raiding. Like all of these things that the press becomes this sort of public witness, this force for change, this ability to give the truth when no one else can see it. 
And I just love this idea that King loves the press so much, like Uh a big believer in the written word. Yeah, but I think it's more than just the written word that that is the source of King's affinity for the press. I think that King really does think of the press as that check on government overreach, on you know, people getting away with things. Yeah. I, I, I would say that he's idealistic about that, especially now more than perhaps, or I should say he was probably even more idealistic about it at the time that he wrote this book. A few years after the Pentagon Papers, after Woodward and Bernstein and, and Nixon, like it's all yeah. following those events. Exactly. Yeah. To King, and I think the expectation that the First Amendment is really getting at, that the press is that source of the unvarnished truth, no matter what your leaders might say, no matter what, you know, the gossip around town might be, if you look in the newspaper or hear Walter Cronkite tell it to you on the, on the evening news, that is the truth. Yep. So if the press is there, they're going to report the truth, which means you have to be on your best behavior if the press is there. And so like that was a big part of the running man. Yeah. At the end, it was the press who kept this, you know, overarching horrible government slash network thing in check at the end. They didn't just do their worst because there were video cameras rolling that the public could see and witness. And yeah, here it is. Like Dawes doesn't want to do whatever his final moment is which is, you know, turns out to be blowing up the house and himself in it until the press is there. Yeah. Until there's somebody to see. Because otherwise he's just some random guy that no one really knows in a house that's going to get bulldozed anyway. What difference does it make? At least if they see, at least if they bear witness, then maybe it counts for something to someone. But then I think King undercuts that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Big time. (laughs) Like even though that that seems to be what like Dawes represents Dawes' view on the press seems to represent King's view, and then King himself undercuts that by saying like, "Yeah, they won a Pulitzer for all this, but no one gave a damn." Nope, <laughs> it, didn't, it with, didn't matter. Yeah, it, it, it was on the front pages for a couple of days. The reporter got his Pulitzer, and and nothing changed, and and Dawes' life just ended, and and without any impact. Yeah. Part of the the bearing witness thing is like, I was shocked, like maybe my modern sensibilities, I can't believe this would happen. But when the press first show up, the cops physically attack yeah. the reporter and and like tackle the a guy with a video camera and then shoot his camera. They, they point their guns at the equipment that the press brought to the scene and shoot it. Yeah. I can't. I'm not aware of anything like this ever happening in real life, but the fact that this is in King's story makes me think that he felt like this was, this feels like a real world story. This is not a fantastical parallel universe. Right. You know, the Illinois of the United States in 1973, 74. Could this really happen? I don't know, but I was blown away by this flying tackle (laughs) of the, the cameraman and then shooting his camera into pieces. Like, what is this craziness? Yeah, I think that this is probably also typical for the times, right? So King is coming out of a protest movement from Vietnam and, you know, the 1968 Democratic Convention type of thing where there was this very much the hippies versus the cops, the man, the pigs, whatever you want to say. 
And mm. the reporter's even shown that way, right? Like he's wearing plaid and he's just like sort of strolls in. He's like, so he's like, all right, man, what shit goes down? Like you don't get the sense like this is Walter Cronkite, like you're saying before. Mm-hmm. Like you get the sense that this is some long haired hippie working for for a main newspaper. It's like, all right, what shit goes down, man? And he just mm-hmm. wants to hear the story. So I think King is purposely setting up like two sides here. Yeah. And Dawes is stuck in the middle, right? Dawes represents a little bit of he is the everyman that he he doesn't relate to the the younger generation. We've talked about that before, but he's also trying to stand up against the government in such way, and and he's sort of lost because of that. I thought an interesting crossover connection between this and the Running Man too was that in the Running Man, when Richardson calls a newspaper to get the press on his side, the reporter says, "Oh man, I <laughs> I smell a Pulitzer," and he's like, "Nah, you just smell the shit you're standing in or something." <laughs> but here, the reporter gets the Pulitzer. Yep. But it's over a story that kind of was just a flash in the pan. Yep. Yep. But, you know, it gets at that point, there's that famous quote about what reporters are supposed to do, and it's supposed to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Right. And that's a little bit of what they're getting at is that, hey, here's the guy who's getting screwed over. Let me let me try to bring his story to light. And, and you know, why tell the story of the other people? But as you said, he undercuts all of this. Mm-hmm. In the fact that the newspaper doesn't matter, the highway still gets built, Dawes dies, nothing changes. And this is really the sort of nihilistic vision that Bachman has. So we've now read four novels by Bachman. They're all very, very nihilistic in a way that for me, even though they're the same guy, it's different than King stories. Like mm-hmm. these have a different feel to them. And I think it's intentional. This isn't how King normally thinks. I think he's talked about that. And ultimately, that's what the dark half is going to be about. But it's very nihilistic. Absolutely. And also, none of these stories are horror stories. No. The horror is just the worst horror of all. Life itself. Yeah. And that's why horror stories and movies are escapists. They they are thrill rides to let us face and engage with the things in, in real life that are scary, that that could hurt us, that could, you know, grab our ankle in the dark when we step down into the basement. But here, these are explorations of what could happen in a real life situation when things just go to their worst possible conclusion. Every one of these stories. And this one might be the most bleak because this is the most everyday story. It's just about a guy whose marriage falls apart after the tragic death of his child. Yep. There's no warped kid who takes out his problems on his class. There's no like weird society, like post-apocalyptic thing going on with the long walk or a post-apocalyptic weird thing going on with the running man. This is just 1973 energy crisis guy (laughs) slowly circling the drain. Just a novel of the first energy crisis, man. Yeah, that's right. It wasn't for that energy crisis. None of this would ever have happened. Yeah, and, and, and the reporter says, I'll see that your side gets told. And then Dawes says, there is no side. And, and the reporter sort of freaked out. He says, what was that? And he's like, I have no side. That's why I'm doing this. Like, there's there's this side and there's that side. And there's just me. I'm stuck in the middle and I've got nothing to say. There's no There's no reason for why I'm doing this. I know nothing's going to change, but... I just got to do it. I think that's the most nihilistic part of the story. Dawes invites the press so that they can bear witness, so that his story might count for something, 
so that there might be more than just himself aware of of what's what's going on. And when he has the opportunity to share it, he chooses not to. Yeah. He realizes at that point that it's not even worth <laughs> wasting the breath of those words. Yep. We get this Bob Odenkirk moment where the reporter says, would you mind telling me why you're doing all this? He says, not at all. It's road work. <laughs> so he doesn't say it like, I imagine that's not his line reading. It's probably like, it's road work. Like, that's all it is. And, and, and then we've got the title there. So yeah, it's all road work. And this novel is written pretty contemporarily with The Stand. Mm -hmm. Like they're both mid to late 70s. And King says in this book, there was no good place to make your stand in the world. And I'm like, tell that to Larry Underwood. Like the whole, he wrote an 800 page novel that is all about taking a stand. And that stand for Larry Underwood is not even doing anything specific, right? For Larry Underwood, yeah, it's yeah. just overcoming your fear and making a stand for what you believe is right. And ultimately, that's what changes the world. Mm -hmm. That's what defeats Randall Flagg. And here in this book, written probably within a year or two of that, there was no good place to make your stand in the world. Like this is really Dawes throwing in the towel and King Bachman throwing in the towel as well. Yeah, because there's another line in this section of the book where Dawes thinks, the fucking you got was never worth the screwing you took. Yep. And I don't think Larry Underwood would ever buy into that statement either, even at his worst. And that was one of the greatest things about Larry in The Stand was that he has probably the, the biggest arc, the, the most character development of any of the characters. And he goes from this incredibly selfish, terrible person to one of the biggest heroes of the story. Yep. We get to experience that entire journey with it. And we see that what he goes through and the stand that he takes is worthwhile. And uh, I mean, while we're talking about it, but this is just all about nihilism, right? It yep. just, there's, it's all why bother. Crazy. All right. Well, we've said many times now that this is a fairly realistic novel, that there's nothing supernatural. There's nothing horrific. There's nothing out of the ordinary here. And yet we are still able to find Dark Tower Thinnies, Jay. We were able to find thinnies indeed. Tell me your first one. All right. So my first thinny is that when Dawes goes to, I believe, make his final visit to the local bank to withdraw all of his money, there is another bank customer in there and she takes out $235.63, which if you add up those numbers, <laughs> adds up to 19. Yep. It's great because it's it's a little bit hidden there because it's all spelled out. Like you don't see the numbers on the page. Mm -hmm. You have to take that extra step to get to the 19. But he's also making a little bit of a commentary because I think the woman who's getting that money is basically an older woman and it's her social security stuff. And I think there's the, yeah. this in a time of inflation and energy crisis, this woman's getting you know not very much money to live on. And here's Dawes walking away with $35,000 for himself and, you know, another thirty-five for his wife. And he's not happy and is going to blow himself up. Yeah. And, and he just nonchalantly just tucks all those bills into his coat pockets and stuff. And it's like, yeah. Although there's even more commentary there, like how all of that money, so much money can just fit into just a couple of coat pockets. Yeah. So we get a reference to the phrase ors de combat. Mm. which is a phrase that I've only seen once before in my 40-some years of life on this earth. And that is when Eddie uses the phrase in the drawing of the three. 
So it's just unique enough that the only other place I've seen it is the Dark Tower. So it is my thinny for this chapter. Very nice. I like it. So my other thinny is a reference to the TikTok man. I almost fell out of my chair when I saw this. So Dawes is getting really angry and he thinks, but above both fear and sensible thoughts was a vast red rage that made him want to leap across the table and choke this TikTok man until clock springs fell out of his ears. And of course, this is Dawes getting worked up and wanting to beat the crap out of the lawyer who comes to his house. But he's the TikTok man. Yeah. Um, You don't hear that that often, and it's not a phrase I'm familiar with, except for the Dark Tower. So good, good thinny. Yep. All right. I've got one yucking it up. And this could almost be a fun stuff, good line, but I'm going to put it in yucking it up because if you think about it too hard, it's pretty gross. And that is, he had been dragging around for the last two months like a dog whose balls had been caught in a swinging door. Ouch. Yeah, ouch indeed, so. Yeah, we'll leave it to King to add that extra, you know, detail of the swinging door. The swinging door, yes. (laughs) I don't have any yucking it ups. You know what's not yucky? What? Our patrons. They're not yucky. They're fantastic. Yes, our patrons are awesome. Yeah, and in fact... Our patrons get to support the show and get access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes. Visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower to learn more. Absolutely. All right. I think it's time for some fun stuff in this very nihilistic novel. What do you got? (laughs) So much fun stuff. Let's see. At one point, Dawes is kind of wandering around his house and there's a line, he had picked things up and looked at them feeling like Iago examining Yorick's skull. And I thought this was a really interesting mashup of Othello and Hamlet. Yeah. I wonder, does is kind of a blue-collar guy, and, you know, the, the laundry sends him to business school so that he can come back and put that extra education to, in you know, reinvest that into the business. We know he's a really smart person, but I don't know how literary he is. Mm. Is this supposed to be King showing us that he's sort of a person who could easily mix up two Shakespeare plays and, and the characters from them? Right. Or is this just like King showing us how sort of mixed up Dawes's mind was at this point? Like just everything was a jumble, including the Shakespeare he has in his mind. Yeah. Everybody knows to be or not to be. A lot fewer people know Othello. And I think that, but just throwing in like... <laughs> Like Amiago wandering around <laughs> in in Denmark <laughs> holding skulls? Like, I don't, yeah. It's just, I, I, I thought it was a fascinating mashup. Yeah, it is. When you pointed that out, I was like, yeah, that is neat. And I, I like I the thought that Dawes' mind is so mixed up that he's just pulling references from all over the place. So one of the things that Dawes picks up when he's going around his house is his yearbook. And there's a couple of interesting things in it. One, we find out that Barton Dawes was voted the class clown of his class, which after reading this novel, I would have never guessed that he was a class clown by any sense of the imagination, but okay. But under his picture, it says Barton G. Dawes, wizard, and he's a member of the Outing Club and the Poe Society. So there's a lot going on here, Jay. Yeah. So one, his nickname is Wizard. I don't even want to guess where that came from. Uh, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt, and he really likes canned cheese. <laughs> I was thinking that he played football and was very fast. Uh, okay. You you don't like the, 
the spray cheese. No. He was also in the outing club. One, two, three, and four. Uh, I'm hoping that the outing club is like an outdoor society of some sort. Like maybe you go hiking or something. What does the one, two, three, four mean? I'm guessing the years that he was in it. Oh, okay. Who knows? And Barton was also a member of the Poe Society. Yeah. So maybe he is a a lot more well-read than I'm going to credit for. Either that or he likes drinking, which I think there's a Poe Society in Baltimore that was involved with having whiskey always around to put on Poe's grave on his birthday. I don't know, but just sort of weird that King threw all that in there. Yeah. I kind of feel like a detective, you know, reading about... Like, oh, let, give me his profile. Oh, he was called Wizer in high school, huh? Hmm. That tells me everything I need to know about this guy. <laughs> <laughs> and the final thing I want to call out, and this is something both of us were fascinated by, and that's the chapter that we're kind of referring to as the stop time. Yeah. Where suddenly the perspective of the story changes, and it's so fundamental and jarring, and it's meant to be, that we get to see or maybe experience what does his mental state is like in just the briefest of moments. Hmm. But King takes, it's like two pages of just uninterrupted, no punctuation text, just things, sights, sounds, movements, or lack thereof, thoughts, impressions, all of this stuff. It seems like somebody hit pause on the world and Dawes is just standing there, just taking it all in. But yeah. of course, we, we know that that isn't what happened. It's just that this is what is, this is everything racing through Dawes' mind in the, the moment between steps, in the moment between breaths, in the moment between heartbeats. But so much happens right. in these two pages. And it, it's like a fire hose of information and sensory overload. And it really sets up a way for us to understand this character. Yeah, it comes after the entire book has been broken up into chapters by dates, Mm -hmm. and they've generally all been one day, right? So November 22nd, December 3rd, whatever. And here we get this stop time where it's literally, is it one second, five seconds, one minute? We don't know. It's just everything has sort of come to a halt, and we see this entire perspective, and, and it's really well done. And just King playing around with that chapter type thing again, like he used in The Running Man, the countdown to make it very propulsive and 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 leading towards something. And uh, I, I thought the stop time piece was just sort of a nice way of King to sort of flex his writing muscles. That stop time, it's like in The Matrix, the first Matrix movie, when they kind of coined the term bullet time. Right. And when we all saw that for the first time, every person who saw that movie was just like, oh, what? I didn't know you could do something like that. That is absolutely incredible. And here it's just, I'm sure maybe somebody else had done this on the page or something similar. But for King, at this stage of his career, at this point in his life, and in this book, it just really stands out and it works so well. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. All right. Well, that's going to bring us to the end of our discussion of Roadwork and the Bachman books. And, uh, you know, this is the one story that I don't think about when I think about the Bachman books. You know, I've always thought like, oh, yeah, The Long Walk, that's the one that I really remember and think about. And it, it's so unique in its setup. And obviously, The Running Man is the one that I know mostly from the movie, but it has fond memories for me. And then Rage is the one that's out of print. And Roadwork is always the one that's sort of the other one that you don't think about. 
But coming out of this, I'm really impressed with this book. And um, I really think it's probably the best of these four, in my opinion. That is interesting. I wouldn't go so far as to say I disagree with just about everything you just said. <laughs> I found myself enjoying this book a lot more than I thought I would because I like the others so much. Mm. And I know none of these should be like in the top five of King's work. No. Right. And I have a lot of fondness for The Long Walk, like I think most people do. And I really like Rage. And that might be a controversial take. I think there are a lot of reasons to despise that story for its content and the things that happen in it. But I've always enjoyed how self-contained it is. And I haven't had a really a, a relationship with Roadwork. I think it's the most forgettable story. It might even be one that I have decided to not reread, where I'll go back to the Bachman books every once in a while and I'll reread The Long Walk. I'll reread Rage. But I have never reread Roadwork until now. And I think maybe from a, a craftsmanship perspective, Roadwork might be the best of the four. Mm. That's not enough to make it my favorite. Yeah, I also wonder if part of it is where I'm at in my life, and that's why this one connected with me much more than than The Long Walk did, like when I was a kid, because I could sort of like, oh yeah, The Long Walk. I'm a teenage boy who's sort of nihilistic in, in a certain way, and I could see myself doing this and or being forced to do this or something like that. But mm -hmm. I have a feeling now that I'm like, oh yeah, middle-aged ennui. Yep. I get it, Bart. I get it. <laughs> yep. All too real. The only difference is you don't have any faith in the press. No. And uh, I'm hoping we don't have a, another energy crisis. What are you talking about? We're in the middle of one right now. Well, <laughs> I don't live in near any major highways that are going to come through my home. Although I will say that a few years back, there was a plan to take our park at the end of the road and build a road through it and attach our road to the other side of town. And I and others in our neighborhood went out and fought against City Hall and we won. I didn't even have to blow up myself or the house, which is great. All right. So, Jay, that's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thank you. Thank you. Links to all of our social media is available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we cover The Regulators, chapters one through four. This is a Richard Bachman novel, yes? It is. <laughs> what? I thought we were done with the Bachman books. Crazy. Fooled you. All right. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. One of the things I want to talk about for the conclusion of the long walk is the fact that Dawes... <laughs> road work, road work. Did I, did I do that? Oh. <laughs> Mono, don't! <laughs> <laughs> There's going to be so much meowing in this yes. episode. <laughs> She's been fed multiple times. I don't know why she keeps doing it. The Pennsylvania polka. <laughs>